Good morning, dear friends. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. I'm actually going to ask you to put that last slide up on the screen. This should be our prayer. We turn our attention now to the Word of God as we open it. Let's just pray this. Father, we, we come to you. We love you. And Father, it is our delight, our great privilege to say that we love you. We know where that comes from. We know that it comes from you loving us first. Father, we are a, if we could say it, a heavenly spoiled people. All the blessings that truly and forever belong to Christ Jesus have been given to us who have repented of our sin and trusted him for salvation. Father, we think of those words, Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior, King, we worship you. Father, worship is not limited to the songs that have just been sung. We are worshiping right now as we pray to you. We read your words. We consider these things, hopefully in unity. Father, be with us. Father, bless our time together. Father, I pray that your word would go out with great clarity and boldness, simplicity. Father, it's not necessarily the, the deepest, deepest conundrums that we need to consider to grow. It's adhering to those things that we, we know to be true, but we tend to drift from each and every day. So, Father, keep us tethered to the gospel and help us be a people always excited about the movement of the gospel in and through our lives. Father, we need your help. Help us listen well. Help me speak well for the benefit of these dear people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please open your copy of God's Word and stand with me. We are going to be in 1 John chapter 3. This morning we will consider 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. But just to give us some context, it's been a while. It's been May since we were last in the book of 1 John. I'd like to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 24 for context. But again, just know that we will focus on 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Let us read. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Please be seated. According to one, one report, over... 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. I would say that that number is higher. These are reports. Christian properties destroyed. Hospitals, schools, places of refuge, safety. Christians were forced from their homes. Children now without parents, husbands without wives, shelter, not a guarantee, food, a scarcity. Persecution of Christians is real. The hatred of the world toward Christ followers is real. From doctrinal fallout to threats of murder, we live as believers we live in a hostile world. There is a God-rejecting and truth-suppressing posture truly permeating across the globe. And we should not be surprised. This was promised to come by the Lord Jesus himself. He said this in John 15, 18 through 19, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And in John 15, 25, he says, without cause, Christ was hated. We should expect that. In the same manner, Christians today are likewise hated. The evil that runs rampant really can produce real needs among God's people. The things we take for granted on a daily basis, an abundance of nourishment, safe and climate-controlled homes, clothing that allows us to dress for all four seasons in one day with the Cincinnati weather. We have, we're able to put on 50 layers every morning and just peel them off. These things can be threatened in the midst of persecution and often are. And so the Apostle John saw this kind of thing playing out in his own day. And he writes 1 John to disciples who were truly being hated by the world. 
oppression was coming from outside the family of God naturally because of Christian haters in general. But to intensify matters, now folks have parted ways from within the supposed family and have joined forces with the world on the basis of denying that Jesus is indeed the Christ, Messiah, that he did take on flesh and come to be the propitiation for sin. The outside pressures of life, they were naturally producing scarcity of resources, but now there is heightened tension. This is creating ongoing needs within, among God's people. So John, in his very pastoral tone, he addresses his readers, hoping to remind the faithful remnants that are still together, to remind them of their standing before God, which is evidenced by their conduct. He wants to bring them back to their identity and prove the validity of it by highlighting their spirit-wrought ethical conduct. In other words, their fruit. And in doing this, John wants his readers to be confident. This is what he's about in the book of 1 John. Assurance, confidence, keeping people on the right track that aligns with their Identity. He wants them to have assurance of their salvation despite the opposition's schemes to draw them away, both in doctrine and in living. He wants them to flourish as God's people, both in doctrine and conduct, as opposed to imploding through each person looking only to the interests of himself. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks pastor and author from long ago, wrote this about a self-seeking posture. Listen to these words. Self-seeking blinds the soul that it cannot see a beauty in Christ nor an excellency in holiness. It distempers the palate that a man cannot taste sweetness in the word of God, nor in the ways of God, nor in the society of the people of God. It shuts the hand against all the soul-enriching offers of Christ. It hardens the heart against all the knocks and entreaties of Christ. It makes the soul as an empty vine and as a barren wilderness. In a word, there is, there's nothing that bespeaks a man to be more empty and void of God, Christ and grace, than self-seeking. So as we make our way through this little sections very clear not a lot of mystery not a lot of guesswork in this little passage but it's something we need to come back to often and as we go through this section in first john's letter we need to ask ourselves some questions in fact throughout this sermon lord willing we're going to be asking a series of questions that i hope we will not only consider during this hour together but that we will take with us as we go out and contemplate these things Lord, what is going on in my heart? What is going on in my life that needs to be adjusted so that I am truly living in light of this glorious gospel identity? I think one of those questions is this. In times of difficulty, what do we think about? Just in general, where do our minds go? And as our minds are considering certain things, where do our actions lead? Do we follow a worldly pattern of handling trial? Or do we quickly 
eagerly adopt one that is Christ-centered. Now, we, we may not be currently experiencing the same exact issue threatening John's readers. I don't know of anyone leaving the body of providence because they're denying the nature and work of Christ, okay? But we must, listen, we must not think either that we are above such a thing happening, okay? And we should always be training ourselves in righteousness to prevent such a thing from happening. And we should always be strengthening our walk with the Lord, refining what's going on in our hearts and in our conduct, advancing our zeal and bearing fruit for Him. And over the past few messages in 1 John, we've already seen the beauty and the necessity of what we're called to, what we're called to remember. 1 John 3, 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We've already seen this in the letter. We've already seen how it points us back to the gospel. So if you need a reminder, if you need a refresher, if you're new to Providence, get on our website, look up sermons from 1 John, and fill in the blanks that might exist in your thinking this morning. But that three little word, that transition word four, really moves our eyes backward to verse 10 which we saw that grand principle at the end of the previous message. We saw that grand principle in verse 10, which says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of devil. Which camp are you in? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Drawing a line, you're either over here, you're over here. And it's really this active Love, love for one another that drops us into this section, verses 11 through 18 this morning. So let's consider verses 12 through 15 as we launch into this section of John's letter. Consider with me verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life within him. This whole section makes its money on contrast. 10 through 18, the whole thing. John contrasts the children of God with the children of the devil. There's hatred. There's what? Love. Life is contrasted with, and we will see in a bit that murder really stands incompatible with self-sacrifice. It's really in this section that John makes his concern one of Christian ethics. Morality based on who God is. Instead of providing a dense argument against what the deceivers were teaching and trying to deceive people away into their realm of understanding and living, all that stuff, he says, no, 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 what I want to get at is your heart. We all know what's going on, and you know the truth, okay? You've had the anointing. You know what the gospel is. You know what to cling to. So now I'm tapping into your heart. And dynamically, he calls them to hold fast 
to what they know to be true. He wants them to value an eternal outlook. And he wants them to move out from themselves in obedience to the things that matter most to God. And so he gives us an example here. He sets up Cain as the antithesis for what is hoped for. What about Cain? Well, Genesis 4, 1 through 16 helps us set that stage. You can turn there if you like. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Not going to read the passage. Just going to kind of walk you through it bullet point style. Adam knew his wife. Cain and Abel were born. They grow up. They take different occupations. Cain becomes a farmer. Abel, a herdsman. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel offers the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord was pleased with whose offering? Abel's, but not with Cain's. So Cain comes indignant. And yet the Lord, even in this episode, he shows such great kindness. He offers a course correction. Cain's like, no. He declines that. He declines the offer. He murders his brother. And then he discounts the Lord's question about Abel's whereabouts. Am I my brother's keeper? And he experiences God's punishment, even though in this picture it's, it's so gracious still. The episode ends with these sobering words in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. We follow his family tree a little bit. Uh, we see that Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, he amplifies Cain's negative reputation by boasting in the very thing Cain was directed away from. Vengeance. Don't go there. Well, Lamech boasted in it. If Cain did this, look what I can do. So back to 1 John verse 12 in chapter 3. Why should we not be like Cain? That's what we're commanded to avoid. Why? Well, the answer is right there. Again, no mystery, no guesswork. He was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. That's identity. Okay? This is who he is. Question two. Why did his belonging to the evil one, or what did his belonging to the evil one lead to? Very clear. The murder of his brother, Abel. Well, that's the fruit. Identity, fruit. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. What about envy? The fruit of his identity. Cain's identity was wrapped up in the evil one who is the devil. Jesus himself said to a group of opposing Jews in John 8, 44 and following, you are of the father, your devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a what? Murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. This is how it works. Based on who you belong to, identity, that's the kind of stuff you'll do. Fruit. So John says in principle, we should not be like Cain. Don't be like this. Cain was an evildoer because he belonged to the evil one. He was envious of his brother who was a righteous doer because he belonged to the most righteous one. Identity led to action. Namely here, negative identity led to negative action. 
Very clear. It's on the surface. That's where we are. Now, let's keep going. John takes his readers a little further in verse 13. He says, knowing all that, don't, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. So what he's done here for us in using Cain, he has set up Cain as a prototype of the world. Cain hates, the world hates. And so he tells his beloved children, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at this. Now, John himself learned this bit of counsel from Jesus himself. So did others during Jesus' farewell discourse. John 15, 18 through 19, we've already considered that this morning. Verse 25, already considered that. If we look at uh, John chapter 16, the first four verses, here's what we, what we would see there. It says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They, the opposers, those who are not adhering to true doctrine and true living, those, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You can write down John 17, 4. That's another reference. Other disciples, I mean, John knew this well. Other disciples knew this well. James knew it well. Look at James chapter 1. Peter knew this well. Consider 1 Peter 4 with me, verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What? Yeah. Because of the spirit of glory and of God that rests upon you. But let none of you, same color, same flavor here, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. The world has the same trajectory as did Cain. Live out your identity. Hate righteousness. Hate followers of righteousness. And in doing so, what you need to do is ensure that there is an absence of love toward them. So he looks at his readers, writes to them. Here's why the world hates you. Because you have a certain identity. And from that identity, you visibly produce a certain quality of fruit. They don't like that. They don't like that. Look in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We, we, we. Three times in that one verse, the we is emphatic. The ability for others to observe our active love toward other believers is proof that we belong to God. That we have been brought out of life, or excuse me, out of death and into life. And only God, only God working through Christ can make that kind of desire shift in a person's heart. I used to be so indifferent, hateful, spiteful toward Christians. 
they annoyed me. I don't care about your Bible. I don't care about your morals. Leave me alone. I want to live my brand of my best life. Don't care. And then uh, God said, hey, believe. Gave me life. And then it was like, okay, I used to hate you, but now I want to go to church with you. And I want to read the Bible with you. Only God does that. The world hates, but we love. It's so simple, but it's so hard. And just as I said, John wants to instill confidence in his readers. He wants to give them assurance based on what is to be observed in their lives. I mean, this is a pretty glorious affirmation. Speaking of their love, their love toward the brothers. I mean, love is, after all, the preeminent Christian virtue. Pastor Dan made mention of 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. What a glorious chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Let's consider these words together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not, what? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I kind of have an issue with that because I'm a percussionist. and I kind of, that's all right with me. <laughs> not, in, not, not in this sense, though. So, okay. I had to correct my heart on that one. And how dare you call a symbol clanging thing? Come on, it's beautiful. Anywho, we'll move on. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not what? I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patience, kind. Does not envy, does not boast, not arrogant, not rude, does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable, resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these, say with me, church, is now. John exclaims, don't be surprised by the world's hatred. Don't be moved by those who have moved away from the truth. That's just life. But he now moves his readers beyond the should. You should mark that word in your Bible, the word should in 1 John 3.11, into understanding, helping them understand that this is true of them. That this is true of them. The end of verse 14 states very clearly, in contrast 
to the identity and the fruit of the believer. Whoever does not love abides in death. Goes on in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, something you know, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, Jesus taught the equation, equation of uh, hatred and murder in the Gospels, showing that sin is a matter of the heart, not just about correcting external behavior. He gets beyond all that. In fact, someone has said this, hatred is murder in embryonic form. All right? So here it is, identity and fruit. And so if you're taking notes, your point is, in the face of opposition, remember your identity. Our identity is defined as those who have been transferred from the darkness of depravity to the eternal light and life of the Lord through the atoning work of Christ. That's who we are. Read that again. Our identity is defined as those who have been transferred from the darkness of depravity to the eternal light and life of the Lord through the atoning work of Christ. And so we ask the question, when we face opposition, what are we remembering? Are we quick to go back to who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ? And does that activity of remembering lead to something holy? Something virtuous? That's exactly where we need to go in this passage. From the things we've already covered in 1 John, rehearsing the goodness of the gospel together, we know that our identity in Christ is supposed to lead to loving others. We've seen the principle time and time again already. But we need to go deeper. We need a little more traction. We need specifics. We need some substance to put onto the principles. We need some how for the what and the why. Well, he gives it to us. Look at verse 16. We'll pick up there. 1 John 3, 16. Read through 18. By this we know love. Guys, this is beautiful. That he laid down his life for us. By this, this you want to know love? This is how you know it. He laid down his life for us. Because of that, we ought. Remember that word should for verse 11? Now ought. We're still in principle a little bit. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay. I'm buying in. What do I do? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his, what? Heart. Closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. So the point is this. When we face opposition, in the face of opposition, keep your heart open. 
I don't mean this in a fleety, fleety, emotional, Hallmark card kind of keep your heart open thing. This is the word of God. Don't close your heart. Keep your heart open. So we need to unpack that a little bit. Verse, verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John Stott, in his, one of his commentaries, says this, the self-sacrifice of Christ is not just a revelation of love to be admired, though we can do that, okay? Not just to be admired. It is an example to be copied. In the wake of deceit, look at what John does here. He points them to something they know, something concrete that they can latch onto, something they can hold onto, hold fast to in times of trial. By this, don't forget, by this we know love. This is of first importance. Our ability, our ability to love, period, is predicated on the reality that he loved us first. Can I get an amen? He did this by laying his life down for us. This is the essence of love in John's mind. Self-sacrifice. He eventually gets more into this in, in chapter 4, verse 10 and following. He's, uh, he's a very circular thinker. We've already seen this about the Apostle John. He thinks a lot like me. I'm kind of over here, then over there, up there, behind there. Just kind of all over the place. And then at the end of the day, you get something that hopefully you take home with you. And it's, it's helpful. Uh, being the Word of God, very helpful. With me, not so much. But he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins, for our sins. This is really one of those places where John wants to slow down a little bit. He wants to slow his readers down. He wants them to take a deep breath, look out the windows, see the scenery before looking at a path of application. And this is, this is really the same thing for us this morning. We need to slow down and not just gloss over phrases like this, that he laid down his life for us. Yeah, we've heard it before. Next song. Guys, we need to just sit and soak and savor the light in this. He laid down his life for us. Let's say that together. He laid down his life for us. Beautiful, deep words. Because it's in his death that we know life. All right? Back to John Stott. He says, love is positive, seeks the other person's good, and leads to activity. Identity, fruit, leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Think about all the things we read about in John's gospel. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In that same chapter, a little further on, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Hallelujah. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. By John 15, 13 through 14. Greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life for 
his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. What happens after Jesus says these things? Just pray a glorious prayer to the Father for his followers across the ages to come. And then he's betrayed. He's arrested. He's denied, questioned, publicly demeaned, accused, flogged, clothed for torment, mocked, crucified, buried. One writer says that Christ, the God of life, was put to death. That he who is one with the Father should cry out of misery, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That he who had the keys of hell and death in his belt should lie in the grave of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body. That that head before which the angels cast down their crowns should be crowned with thorns. And those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death. Those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels to hear the blasphemies of the multitude. That face that was fairer than the sons of men to be spit on by beastly men. That mouth and tongue that spake as never man spake accused for blasphemy those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven and those feet like unto fine brass nailed to the cross for man's sins. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against evil and induce the soul to fly from it and to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed. There is no greater demonstration of love than what Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Period. We know the tune. We know the lyrics. Bearing shame and sing scoffing rude In my place condemned He sealed my pardon Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Guilty, vile. Spotless lamb. Full atonement. Full atonement. Can it be? Yes. By this, we know love. Folks, if you have never been humbled, if you have never been humbled at the cross, if you have never repented, turned away from your sin, your sin toward a holy God, if you have never done that and trusted alone in Christ to forgive you, 
I beg you to just consider the things that we've rehearsed in the last few moments. Bring your questions. Bring your questions. God's Word has all the answers. So don't leave this place not being able to taste the sweetness of the gospel. I once hated it. Hated the message. It is the sweetest. It is the sweetest. Know this. Acts 4.12. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. Excuse me. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You have to forgive me. I've got I've got friends no longer with me. Because they refuse to taste. And so when I sing, full atonement can it be? I stand puzzled. I stand amazed. I stand humbled. May we all Always be in awe of the gospel. Okay, enough of the waterworks. Let's get back to 1 John 3.16. John says that believers ought to do something. It's already used the word should in verse 11, I believe it was. But the shift now is linking some sort of specific application to the principle. So in 1 John 3, 17 through 18, he says very clearly, if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the kind of fruit observed in John's readers and further expected. It was likely because he includes this in his letter, this was likely a speed bump in their growth. They had some schemers around them. The opposition was around. Which way do we go? Well, don't miss this. It's actually pretty cool how intentional uh, the Apostle John gets here. He ditches the plural language, y'all, okay? He says, put that on the shelf for a minute, and let's get into the singular, you. It's almost like he's having a one-on-one conversation with each of these dear people. You, whatever your name is, fill in the blank. If you have material possessions necessary for life, and you see someone else among you, your brother, you likely know who it is if you're part of this body, okay? You know who that that woman, that man is? Don't close your heart. What is he talking about? Don't shut up compassion. Don't shut up compassion. To do so is to live in a way completely incompatible with your identity. And even before the New Testament gets into this subject, this topic of meeting the needs of the poor, this priority has been in the mind of God for ages. You know, based on the laws of Leviticus and heading into Deuteronomy, we see this glorious passage 
in chapter 15, 7 through 11. I'll read it quickly. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord of God, your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need. Whatever it is, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, well, the seventh year, the year of Jubilee is coming. That's the year of release. We'll, we'll just wait till then. He says, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. The heart is connected to the hand. The identity is connected to the fruit. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. And perhaps we would agree that it's, it's easy-ish to get enthusiastic about a broad way of loving than it is to be hands-on in the trenches of delivering these resources. Something that comes to mind, just out shopping, you see the red buckets all over the place, you walk in, throw a few coins, right? Maybe it's a certain Giving Tuesday gift. You go above and beyond to do that. It's easier to give to these big picture kind of things. I'll give a little bit, gets me off the hook, eases my conscience. Now I can just move on with the season. Okay? It is possible to open your wallet and keep your heart closed. You don't want to forget that. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H. This is uh, one commentary says this, then it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That's, that's what John's getting at. When he tells his readers not to love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Servitude is costly. Living out our faith requires sacrifice. And guess what? It requires you. The point is not that if you see your brother or sister in need, and if you're able to take care of it, well, that's when you go to someone else so that they'll take care of it. Maybe that's when you go to the church and say, hey, there's this issue, deal with it. No, that's what you might do if you see a need, but don't have the resources to help. We'll touch on that in just a minute. The point is here, humbly, privately, display your belonging to Christ by meeting specific needs. Practically speaking, what does this look like? I think you have some blanks in your notes very quickly. Be aware of what the Lord has provided. If you're in the habit of keeping some sort of gratitude list, just think about what the Lord has given you. We are blessed. But with that, move to be aware of your brother's needs. Know what the Lord has given you, provided, 
Be aware of your brother's needs. Aim to know your local church family so well that not one need ever reaches the ears of the deacons or elders here. Pray for eyes to see needs. When talking to folks in the, in the foyer, ask how you can pray for them. Ask if there are any practical needs that could be met. And then consider those in wisdom. Wisely consider your involvement in meeting those needs. Next thing, be ready for God to move His resources. What He has given to us belongs to Him. And so be ready. Be eager. Lord, you've given this to me. I love it. It's awesome. But hey, is there someone else who needs it? That's the heart. And there's a temptation to move towards self-preservation and protection in times of difficulty. If the heat is coming, then I am boarding up my windows, stocking up my provisions for myself, and doing everything I can to ensure that my kingdom is not disrupted. Now, I'm not saying that it is wrong to store up resources for the future, especially if it's for the good of your family, for neighbors, friends, but it is most certainly an opportunity to take stock of what's going on in our hearts, to consider our motives related to security and generosity. This is what John is getting to. He says, no, no, don't don't protect your behavior. Protect your heart. He wants the behavior. The fruit will come out of your identity. The fruit will come from your heart, your life, your stuff, all that belongs to God. And in very, very large, bold print, it says that He can do whatever He wants to with it. Life really is more than food. And the body is much more than clothing. So don't anxiously hoard what the Lord sends your way. Rather, eagerly look for ways to meet needs. That's a kingdom mindset. That's just what a believer desires and does. So the question for some of us might be, how connected are we to daily life with our brothers and sisters here at Providence? And how sensitive are we to the needs that exist? Because truly, where your heart is, excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just as a quick aside here, I can honestly say that I am beyond humbled by the generosity this church shows on a weekly, daily basis. Every week I'm hearing about needs just being met. No one's boasting about it. It's just there was a need, this person took care of it. Praise be to God. Guys, this is living out our identity. So let's never grow cold in this. This is keeping our hearts open. And really, this kind of matches, in a sense, what John is doing here in terms of emphasis. He's cultivating confidence in the Lord, assurance based on what is being evidenced. So church, be confident, be assured. We're loving the brothers. Keep loving the brothers. But there may be some among us that you really wrestle with self-preservation and God's command to meet the needs of others. You may have a closer relationship with the world's goods 
than perhaps you thought. Trusting in security versus trusting in God is to some a very real and da- excuse me, very real and daily battle. And so this is a message for you in the sense that, hey, be stirred up to course correct by God's glorious grace today. And by getting to John's emphasis of meeting needs, what if you see, okay, what if we see someone in need and you can't meet that need? Well, it's okay then to get others involved. It's okay to be the church and come together and say, hey, this is going on in this person's life. I can't do it by myself. Let's pray about this. Let's take care of it together. Live in community. Live out our identity. Okay? But there's also a sense in which we give from our poverty. There's also a sense in which we give from our poverty. 2 Corinthians 8 really zooms out from a one-to-one meeting of needs to uh, local churches meeting the needs of suffering saints in another place, in Jerusalem. The context is slightly different, but the principles do transfer. And uh, let me just walk you through some of those. Read 2 Corinthians 8 on your own time and the context around it. It might be a good activity for after lunch. But in short, here's what's going on. The Macedonian churches were extremely poor, but they gave generously. They even gave beyond their means to provide relief to the poor brothers in Jerusalem. They were even so eager about this that they begged for the opportunity. Here's the cool thing about the Macedonian church. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then got busy with the work. They understood the identity piece. They understood the heart behind the fruit. Said, Lord, what we have is not much, but it is yours. But guess what? More than all the stuff, here we are. Here we are. Then they get busy with the relief work. And then the Corinthian church is coming on board. They're like, okay, we want in on this. This is good stuff. And so he's all excited about this. He says, look, you need to follow through on this project. That's a mark of your love being genuine. And then in verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he roots all of this in the gospel. He roots it in their identity in Christ, leading to their fruit in Christ. What's going on here? It's love. This is love. Self-sacrificing, others-blessing love. Simply, it's the heart showing itself to be alive in Christ. This is showing the believer to be abiding in Christ. We'll give the resources we have, but Lord, you have us. This comes only from belonging to Christ and living out his sweet, truly unburdening commands. Identity, fruit, assurance, The world, as we wrap up here, the world is not getting less hostile toward Christians. The heart of Cain is still beating. The liars are still deceiving. Will the Lord find us abiding? Will the Lord find us loving? Will the Lord find us denying self and sacrificing all in His service?
Or will he find us worrying? Will he find us laboring toward self-preservation? Will he find us indifferent to the needs of one another? Guys, as the heat in our culture intensifies, tempting us to drift, to soften on our Christian convictions, will we move away from one another in hatred, indifference, or toward each other in love? Very real, daily, concrete, tangible, need-meeting love. What adjustments do we need to make today to be ready for the world's hatred tomorrow. Now notice, I'm not advocating here any specific actions. I'm not presenting a charity of any sort. I'm not giving you a list of names for people. They have things going on. Go help them. Look, it just says in principle form, you see a need, meet the need. And so I leave it there. I leave it there. Know your brothers. Know your sisters. See a need, meet a need. Think of this. One Puritan wrote this, and we'll pray. He that will not give himself to the Lord is like to give but little else. And if he should give all that he had and only withhold himself, God will not accept nor reward it. God will have nothing of thee if he may not have thy heart. Father, we adore you. Not just for the goodness you've shown us, but solely on the basis of the fact that you are good. Father, this this message comes to us largely in principle form, and I just pray that you would help us put specific application to the bone of that principle in the week to come, this season. Father, may we live life in such a way as brothers and sisters in Christ that the world sees a bunch of strange people but strong in love, strong in their faith, strong in their identity, consistent in the fruit of that they produce. And Father, help us contribute individually as we're taught by the Apostle John. Also help us link minds and hearts to think deeply about what we could do corporately to display to the world our identity and be a fruitful people for your glory. Father, take our hearts. Take all we have. I pray that we would lay all at the foot of the cross. Father, help us get serious if we're not already about living out our faith. Father, it's radical. It is. It requires a lot. Father, when we consider the gospel, Christ laid down his life for us. Father, it's just natural to say, of course, 
Jesus did that for me, how could I not? And then you would fill in the blank. Father, move us. Move us to consider application. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.